Welcome to the If These Walls Could Talk podcast. I am your host, Rachel Usher. I'm an accomplished interior designer and solopreneur, having built my own design practice from nothing into an award-winning and published studio. During my own design journey, I have found the business side of interiors to be secretive and largely conducted from behind the curtain, leaving business owners like myself grappling with the unique complexities of running a design business and often having to learn many things through trial and error. Well, here's the thing. It doesn't have to be that way. This show is designed for design professionals and together with our guests, we demystify the business of interiors. This is the place where we hear from the personal experiences of some of the most talented people that work within the design industry. From entrepreneurs to business experts, together we unravel some of those truth tales about what it really means to not only survive, but to thrive in the creative world of business. Today I'm going to be speaking with Gregory Phillips from Gregory Phillips Architecture. Gregory is an architect here in the UK and he predominantly designs very contemporary, modern, super prime and high-end residential buildings in London and the South East. Gregory has been an architect running his own practice since the very early 90s, so he has many, many years and decades of rich experience that he brings and the changes that he's seen along the way and some of the pivotal success moments that have taken his studio to the high profile studio that it is today. Hi Gregory, thank you for joining me today. Hi, good morning. I just wanted to introduce you a little bit to our listeners and explain how I first came across Gregory Phillips and Gregory Phillips Architecture and that was possibly 2018 or 19, just before the pandemic, basically. And I had been out to LA. I'd met with Estee Stanley from the I agency, and I had been listed as one of her artists. And I noticed that you were also listed as one of her architect artists. And so at that point, I became aware of you and I've followed you ever since. And when I started this podcast, I thought you'd be somebody I really want to speak to because you have obviously also reached out to the to the Atlantic, the other side, and identified that there's a different way of doing business over there. So I thought it'd be interesting to, you know, explore your journey a little bit. So do you want to introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit more about who you are and where you're from? Sure. Um, so I run an architectural practice um, based in London, Um, And we specialise in high-end luxury residential architecture and interiors that go with our architecture. So my journey to uh, away from the UK and towards um, North America began, I I guess, a similar timescale in that we started building new houses. So I started my office in 91. Um, um, So it's been a bit of a journey. Um, And in about... In about the early 2000s, we started getting commissions for new houses, and um, that led to a number of them, which are really what I would call contemporary luxury country houses. So what we did is we kind of took the luxury and high-end detailing that we were doing in central London to um, locations in the countryside and produced some outwardly very contemporary houses um, with a lot of detail. And I guess that was a little bit unusual. We won tomorrow Aviator Awards, uh, fairly well known. And people kept saying to me, these houses could be in Miami or Los Angeles. They look like they should be there. Um, 
because a big part of what I do is the inside-outside uh, experience, big bits of glass, so you can experience everything in your garden. Your garden is part of your interior, really. And when you open it all up on the weather, when we can, they, they will combine. And when you can't, you get to enjoy your garden because you've got the glass that's protecting you from the elements and you're nice and warm and cosy inside and outside is what it is. And actually, it's lovely looking at the weather. So in some ways, my houses are perfect for the UK because we can get to be warm inside and see what's going on outside. So in 2017, I started the journey of going to North America. And I first, my first stop was Miami which I thought, you know, not that far um, comparatively to going to California. But I thought it was quite a specific architecture there. And um, I thought it was going to be a difficult place for me to start. Then I went to Los Angeles and found a much more can-do, inclusive kind of attitude from everybody. And people kept saying, well, actually, what you do here is a bit unusual. Because the scene there is there are there are a number of good architects, but not that large number that you might anticipate based on the amount of new construction that goes on. So, and there, it tends to go that as soon as someone is um, makes a name for themselves and is uh, well known, everyone goes to them. So it, it's sort of so you end up with a small number of super well known successful companies. I mean, they've got their signatures, and they mainly produce the same kind of house or interior, indeed, over and over again. And so what I would be bringing here, and people said, I get it, you've got something to offer that isn't here. So um, I, found the, I found that kind of positivity. It's quite, it's quite seductive, but it actually mm. did make me feel like there was not opportunities there. Yeah. And I guess, I guess so the, the way I found the I agency, it was through a few different routes, actually. I... So I found the meeting people in Los Angeles is um, it's something people expect. People expect networking to happen. The networking events are really joyous. I mean, they really enjoy their best lives of, you know, whining, dining, partying. But it's all with a business hat on, really. But business and social, it's kind of very combined. So people, they definitely want to enjoy their lives in their work. So it's very, it's very easy to meet people there. It's very kind of inclusive in those kind of events. And, and a number of people said to me, uh, we've heard about the eye and you'd be perfect for that because you've got something to offer that's different, but you're not here on the ground all the time. So they could promote you when you're not here. So that was, that was a theory anyhow. Yeah, and, and that's not dissimilar um, to how I came across, across the eye agency. And as we've discussed before, I... I do have a home there, so I spend a lot of time in the States. And one of the things that I think you've captured so well is their spirit. And um, at, at first, the first few times I visited the States, there was an element of me thinking that it was just great customer service. And it was almost applied because of the context. And then the more times you go, the more you realise, actually, no, this is a cultural difference. I think we hold back and keep ourselves to ourselves a lot more. Um, and I found that my experience of working with people in the interiors industry out there has been incredibly welcoming and very embracing. And you write about the events. I, I went to an event with Rick Campos, who does a design business retreat, and it was it was amazing. And it was in Orange County, and I was in a room of 20-something designers, and they were all willing to share and have the conversations that we don't have, you know, the conversations that are a little bit uh, sensitive and tricky about fees and 
you know, problems with procurement or clients or these things that come up and actually can sometimes make our life really challenging. It was just all out there to be spoken about. And that, to me, was really, really refreshing. Gregory, I'm interested interested to know if that experience that I feel working in the interiors industry also exists in the architecture side of the industry. So there are definitely architects at the same kinds of events. And I think there's a general... So it's like everyone out there has done Tony Robbins or some transformational course because they kind of go with the world that there's abundance (laughs) and there's enough for everybody. So just because you've got an amazing commission doesn't mean that I can't get an amazing commission. And actually also, if you've got some great connections, uh, it might come my way in some way. So there's a lot of like, I'll do something for you um, and maybe at some point you'll do a solid for me. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of like goodwill planted, which I think you're right is sort of mm-hmm. marketing and and I'd say that um, the one characteristics of architects and designers that I noted in California and particularly Los Angeles is that they're just they're just fantastic at marketing they're fantastic at the business end of it. I, I would say in the UK people focus on not the marketing. They focus on, I mean, obviously uh, some companies that absolutely do, but there's a lot of focus on the work rather than the marketing. They're, they're very strong on that. Are architects the same as interior designers? I, that's a little bit tricky to know, actually. I think that there's somewhat generosity. So interior designers, I feel like they may share the world where there's cross-referrals or you know, collaborations, there's somewhat, but it's. A, I think it is a bit more guarded. I would say, but they do they do join in with um, disciplines and they do do the same events. And there's a sort of camaraderie. There are a number of organisations that are all about yeah. groups of designers in all disciplines, sharing their knowledge, sharing like the you, you know the hard bits, the good bits, what works, what doesn't work. So, so there is a lot more, I suppose, commonality and participation i think the interior designers are very friendly i think the architects are somewhat <laughs> say somewhat but definitely more open. <laughs> i'd say definitely more open than in the uk i i i i don't think the same kinds of organizations exist here for sharing knowledge uh, of course there are some so when i say yes. they don't exist there there are some so i know i could be picked up on that but not to the yes. same extent that there are <laughs> yeah and that's true of interiors as well we've got you know the SBID and the BIID and we've got those things that are there and I've always found those to be great academic platforms for bringing a sense of standardization to the professional leveling up of a designer I think what I found absent is the peership the networking the being able to pick up the phone to somebody in the industry and go oh gosh I've got this thing going on and how would you handle it because that absence of networking which is self-marketing and peership feels to be you know it's not progressive enough I don't think here and I think there's an opportunity for more of that so Gregory talk me through your early days your beginnings and your your career journey from the start how did you get to where you are so right from the beginning uh, at school I, at age 18 I didn't really know what I wanted to do 
And I had a conversation with my headmaster. I think it's the only conversation I ever had with my headmaster. And, I, and he sort of did this. I think he spoke to the students once. Uh, and it was this point where, what are you going to do next? And um, I, I think I went in the room with two options. One was something in computing and the other one was architecture. And um, my A-levels at the time, which I guess is the relevant information, were very maths. And, I was maths and physics. I did three maths A-levels in physics. I was like completely potentially on the path to be, you know, someone who goes into computing. Although at that point it wasn't anything like it is today, but, you know, it was, it was still like a good option. I didn't even think about banking. I didn't even think about film production. I, I mean, I, I guess I came with very limited options. And of those two, I, you know, I did have interest in drawing. I did paint in my spare time. And I guess architecture was sort of put in the frame. I thought, oh, yeah, that's interesting. That's, a, that's definitely going to be a challenge uh, because I, you know, I do remember as a little child, I would draw half, like imaginary houses. They're all like double-fronted near Georgia, I think. But um, mm-hmm. I'd kind of like I'd kind of make up these houses. Um, and uh, anyway, so I started architecture and... I, it was pretty tough for me, I've got to say. And then at some point in the second year, I kind of got what space is. Like I got the, the 2D and the 3D, how they relate. And I could imagine walking around buildings and different experiences. And it just kind of clicked. This is great. I mean, I don't think I was really great at it, but I just really got that it was a really fascinating thing to be doing. So then I, so that was at Bristol University. Then I went to, um, I worked for a year, and then I went to Glasgow. So I went to the Macintosh School of Architecture, which is in Glasgow School of Art. And that was, again, another pretty tough experience. But I learned, um, I learned a lot there. And um, from there, I went to work with Julian Wickham, who was always a fan of the students from Macintosh. And from there, I went to work with David Chipperfield, who's now obviously extraordinarily successful. Um, and when I was in the office, there were, um, you know, there was like a handful of people. So it was a pretty spectacular time in terms of the workload was uh, variable, but we were doing things in Japan and we were doing competitions. And this is the beginning of his like journey into competitions. And, and I got to be doing the London houses for um, very successful because David was on the plane so much. I was really running jobs as, you know, very early on in my career. And I thought, this is great. The only problem was I had to ask somebody else their view other than the client, which was, who was mainly on the plane. So I realised I, I did actually want to have my own uh, office and have that um, relationship with the client where once we agreed something, that was the way it would go. So I set up my office pretty young in the early 90s. And um, I had, when I was working within an office, I was working on equivalent to their multi-million pound um, projects. And then um, all of a sudden it's much smaller work. Um, but that kind of, you know, it was okay. And gradually, organically over time, I tried a, di- a few different other kinds of building projects. I did some hotel projects. I did some um, art galleries. I did some uh, offices. And then um, I, I did a house in about the year 2000 that was a, in just off High Park. And I thought, this is great. I'm kind of in charge of the team. I'm the lead connect with everybody. The client speaks to me. It's a wonderful client who's got discerning tastes. And um, so this is this is great. Why don't I just keep doing this? So that's basically that journey. And then it was a little bit later when 
bankers were not a, such a nasty word, and they, they had some money, and they were willing to build new houses. Um, and the internet was very good to me. I was kind of early on the internet, and um, I got commissions, you know, it would send me an email, I got. I want to build. I want to build a six thousand square foot new build house in London. Can you come and meet me? So that was just outstanding. That was fantastic. So I, I, I basically have most of my career relied on um, stuff coming from the internet and then social media, um, and really been not that great at going out in the world and, and meeting people. But I obviously do know at this point quite a lot of people. Nothing like mm. I think I feel like I should have done at this stage. But from country house to country house and from project to project, it kind of came in waves. So we'd be busy doing something, then it would finally get finished, and you'd photograph it, and you'd submit for awards, and you'd get nice accolades, and hopefully delighted clients and delighted project and, you know, delighted project. And um, we did a few of those, and, and then, as I say, it kind of got to the point where people said you could be doing more. And I always thought I could be doing more in different places. It's just um, I was relying on um, my limited uh, marketing plan, I guess. Um, but it, I, I don't think that was a, ter- a terrible way to go in that um, it was controllable. And I, I always wanted to keep very close connection with, with the project, with the design, uh, with clients, with the whole situation. I wanted it to be um, very professional and all about design. I was always kind of irate that people would say my architect didn't do this and didn't do that. And then it kind of went hand in hand with, but they didn't pay them very much. So it would be much better. They, I, like, I need a bit more resources to give you fantastic people doing a fantastic job. Because what we do is really a combination of the talent you put in and the hours that they put in. And there's, like, there's no ways around that. Talent and hours. So don't do yes. if there are not enough resources, you can't be doing that combination. So in some ways, people either skimp on the hours or they skimp on what they pay their staff and they get lesser staff. And I, I just never wanted to do that. I always wanted to aim to be in a world where we could give it enough time. So now we, we you know, our only struggle is we always want to give it lots of time, um, even if we you know don't have the time as it were but um that's our aim is to give every project enough time with fantastic people so that it's a good result I like that I like the way that you've you've described that it's a combination of talent and time because that is really understanding your value and your worth and you're right there are different offerings in the market I drive around and I go oh my god why is that building being built with such little thought and I'm not an architect at all but it's clearly it's probably a council building of some sort and it's clearly been budget restricted and the outcome reflects that do you find that that is a common approach to architectural kind of marketing and your your fees that it's a similar model or or are there variances around how that works as well so one of the great things about doing people's houses is that you know i've mainly worked with entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs get it they understand Mm. they don't always necessarily want to pay you know they want to pay what's reasonable they don't necessarily want to pay what's generous but they get it that if you don't have the right components in the mix you won't get a good result and this is something you know that they're going to live in and they care about so they they really do want to have a good result so i think that's a very fortunate position and you know if i say well look, this other engineer who might work in a project they're a little bit more than these other guys but they'll definitely put more in and you'll get more out of it 
there's a conversation that is kind of may go okay. I mean, with some people, not everybody. Um, and the same goes with builders. Like very often, we've said to people, look, we, we run a tender list, and there's different, but even though they've quoted for the same project on a very detailed set of information, there are differences between these builders. And I can take you to their projects, and I can show you the differences, and you can speak to them, and you can understand the differences, because no, no two companies are the same. So there will always be a nuanced difference. And many times the client has said, I'm going to go with the one that's not the cheapest because I get that there's a difference of how it's mm. going to go, something about it that's right. And that's a kind of um, weighing up all the components to make your decision-making process. Now, unfortunately, or just characteristically, not all kinds of buildings are about that. So often it is just about the lowest price, and often it's about the lowest price at the tender stage or at a very early stage. So that, and it doesn't necessarily mean that's the price at the end of the line either. Yeah. I think especially with, you know, public schemes, that first number that people come up with isn't a real number. It's just the one that gets the thing moving forward. Um, so they're on the back foot from the very beginning. So it's obviously not all clients, not all situations, but unless you have the aspirations of doing things really well, you're, you're never going to. How have you found, because you've obviously um, very well crafted that this is about quality and output, input and output and the value of that. One of the things that's come up across the industry the last few years is the really uncontrollable fluctuations of material cost pricing. How have you found that has affected your work? Well, so building in the pandemic was obviously um, a unique challenge, but price moving all the time. Mm. And it, it was, it, so that was very difficult. Obviously, there were shortages of everything at some point, and um, it still might take longer to get different you know, aspects and materials you need um, in construction. I, I think the fluctuating prices has meant that builders have become very keen um, to try and lock in prices early on in the process and so that it's sort of back back, you know, when you're locked in, they're locked in. There used to be a mindset that the builder would, you know, contractor would give you a price and then forevermore they'd be trying to get a lower one. Now I think they're fighting for the fact that if they don't lock it in early, they're just going to get a higher one. So I think I think it's a different mindset out there i think it's very problematic because when prices are if they are just going up and i don't know they're always going up but when they are going up that's when people make big mistakes and on their numbers and that takes people uh well put some people out of business basically yeah it's highly risky isn't it at the moment oh it certainly has been I, i hope it's settling down a bit but what with a looming election and interest rates, who knows? How do you find that that has impacted on the need to undertake value engineering? Has there been any? Well, you know, the funny thing about high-end architecture is that although everyone really wants what they want, people are always a bit amazed how expensive it really is. So there's always a moment of, okay, maybe I can save something I didn't expect to, but maybe I do need to look at that. Um, So it... I would say that the sort of top end residential is the is almost the least effective area that happens in the especially on the finishes side. People just really want what they want, but they're I think they're very conscious of where the money might go. And 
And, you know, if you choose one brick over another brick, you might be saving an awful lot of money. So, but I think, I think it's always been that way that people want to make um, educated choices on all the components of a building. Yeah, I think there definitely was a time when, would I say, maybe in the 90s where, well, basically house prices kept going up. So if you spent a bit more on construction, you didn't mind so much. When when your spending on construction goes up and you don't think you're going to get it back, that takes um, more confidence in the long-term mm. view and I think acceptance that you're only going to live a certain number of years um, and you're only going to certain live lifestyle in a certain way and you should enjoy your life as much as you can. So if that is having a fantastic house, have a fantastic house. Like it's, there's no prize for waiting to have a fantastic house. Um, I think people need to kind of be measured about what they do, but they should just enjoy their lives. So I, I think value engineering is a lot more difficult when it comes to houses because people they get certain things just feel are experienced different to others. But not not everyone wants the most expensive marble anyway. You know, some people are in that mindset, other people aren't in that mindset, and for them it's yeah it's not just about value engineering or the money it's just about the kind of house that they want kind of experience they want yeah yeah we did a a project during the pandemic and um costs were rising so exponentially we were asked to go through a value engineering exercise and it took us a few weeks and during the course of those few weeks every single penny of gain that we achieved was lost by further price rises in that window so it was a really unfortunate exercise the client didn't get um, really the objective they were looking for. In fact, they got less um, in the end, um, which is quite sad. Well, it was a great great project, great success, but I think it was a lesson for us and also the client in these dynamic times, really. Over the course of your career, have there been any key moments of kind of challenge where you've really had to look at how you're running your business and think about something that's come up and how you address it? It's the age-old one in that um, you know, you're always trying to balance the workload and the number of people you have and how you do the work. Mm. And it's very hard to turn away a lot of work and it's very hard to change the numbers of people um, in as much as I think when you get to – it depends how large your office. I have a you know boutique office so that my employees are once I take them on I'm very invested in every way that they stay in the office and it's um you know the cliche is to say it's a family but it is a kind of family in as much as you want them to do well and you want you know your unit that has um aims to do for us it's you know lovely houses um and architecture that we've proud of and so once they're in I feel like they're in so the the thing um I said earlier is that we sort of tend to do projects in waves of workload but it's not quite like that obviously you can't be sure when a project will come in and you don't actually know um if there's something come along on the journey that will make it take you know years longer we've had projects go on hold for you know more than a year so and sometimes the client is willing to go ahead with say 50% of the information before they start under construction and sometimes they want 100%. So that, that makes a very big difference in the pre-start time. The planning consent can take, you know, three months to any number of options, but we obviously try and get it done as rapidly as possible. Balance is the difficult part. 
So I think I've always been, I've always known that, I've always experienced that. You always have to see how you can balance it. And I'm not, I'm, I'm completely fine about taking short-term decisions to take on more people and, and managing that so they, you know, everything is known about, if you like. But I'd much rather take on permanent people when I take them on. And my gut, and my people tend to stay years, to be honest. I don't go extraordinary thing happens in their uh, private life or, you know, in their mindset, but generally they don't leave to go to another architectural office, they stay. So I think the pandemic was a very big focusing situation for me in that it, it was more of I'd already experienced, but it was a much clearer version in that um, I decided I wouldn't follow anybody and I, I would just keep the people mm-hmm. I had and be... Uh, almost accepting at a certain point of this is the workload we had. So it's a very it was a very difficult balancing act me- mentally because uh, it was much less clear what the world was going to do. And yeah. I also decided, you know, I actually need a physical office space we'd work from in central London and um, and almost like a home to go back to. Well, we now have a hybrid work situation where half a week people are at home and half a week they're in the office. But I, I felt very much it was important to have the physical space, even if we were using it half the week and we could all meet there and um, designing. And when we have moments of intense design, it's much better to be in the room and talking around uh, someone's computer um, and you miss out on stuff when you're not there. But I've, I've accepted the sort of hybrid situation. But yes, I think the acceptance of um, balancing people and work um, as an ongoing dynamic that sometimes is tough. I, I, I kind of got that survive after a few months of having an office, but, you know, 30 years later, it's still, it's still like the challenge, really. And it's the same for me, the, you know, the unpredictability of caseloads, project work, you know. Um, and you, you made a, a point earlier, which is something that we also experience, and I know other studios do, which is sometimes a project can be put on pause. And sometimes that pause can be, for reasons completely outside of your control, such as something going on in their the client's lives or something that causes the project to be put down. And that can suddenly completely upturn your, your planning around um, capacity and who was allocated onto what project. How do you handle the scenario where a project has to be put on pause and then picked back up again, perhaps 12 months later? Is there something within your uh, contract that has a kind of a restart fee or is it just the way it is and we handle it. A restart fee would be great, but we've never done that. We, we basically just know, we, we don't say how long a project will be. We, we know that there's different things that can happen along the way and we just take that on. Um, so it's mm. probably not the small, most switched on business model, but it is client friendly, I think, in that if circumstances mm. happen, uh, we're just there when they're, when they're ready and we'll make it work. So, yeah, yeah the clients go, one client of ours went off for, you know, work. They took a job in the States while we were building the house in the UK, so that went on hold for a long period. And uh, a few clients sort of looked to raise the money during the process. They started it and they, you know, for various reasons, they had various deals or other things going on in their lives. They couldn't get on with it. Um, it it's just part of it. and. Um, I've always hoped that when it came, we'd be okay. Um, and that's what we make happen, really. Um, 
And I, I think the, you know, the foreign work is also um, a new component in that, um, so in the UK, even, it's actually pretty unpredictable, but we kind of know often that things will be, you know, clients say, how long will it take? And I say, well, look, I have had one house project where from this moment to you moving in, the equivalent of you moving in, you an entire house with an extension in a year. And, but that took the client making a lot of decisions that were actually quite risky. You know, you know, there was a lot of risk and you know, the, they had to have confidence in the way that money was being handled. If you put double that amount of time in or you know, maybe even more, you get a much more um, measured process where you are much more aware of what the final numbers would be before you start. And you get to spend more time um, on the design. Which is, I mean, if you do, you need to do things really well once, but you may not need to do things really well five times. But so it depends what kind of client that is. Yeah. For some people, they need to go through the options. So it depends on the right, yeah. right time scale for the right person. But um, yeah, so so in the UK, it's a certain timeline. Um, Los Angeles, in different areas, has like its own completely different timelines and getting permits is a very lengthy process it can be much much longer than getting a plan of consent in the uk so it, it, it's a whole different situation and um you know other places we did this year we designed a house in um jeddah and i think that planning but that home process did have an iteration but it came through pretty rapidly to be honest um so it all depends where you're working again on the workflow. And how does your service structure change when you are working remotely for a client overseas? Have you had to define a different set of deliverables for that? Well, so again, it's as much as they need or they want um, in different places. So we designed an apartment in Miami where we actually drew most everything, actually. Um, and then there was an architect on the ground who... In effect, we redrew everything we had um, and made it compliant with local, to get the local permits and the getting through the building management um, um, and that side of things. Um, but they referred back to us on every question of detail. And so we'd look at their drawings, we'd review them. So we were really involved there, like it was, I mean, that was almost like it was in the UK, except we weren't doing the on site inspections and we weren't answering any questions from contractors and again we didn't have the iterations with the um, authorities that was our sort of most detailed that that was actually quite a successful process I think because I feel like that Mm. looks like our house you know looks like our project in other places we've just designed concept if you like so it's a question of how much people want to do Obviously, I'm biased. I think the more we do, the better the, the answer, but, but that's up to each person. Yeah. Now, I, I, I can understand the um, the value of having a local expert on the ground that's delivering your plan, um, especially when you're working across different borders, really, because, you know, everywhere is so, so different. Um, so you've mentioned your boutique studio and your team and how you nurture them and, you know, you want them to stay. One thing I haven't asked you, though, is... What is your team? What's it comprised of and how many people? There's six of us. We've been about that number for quite a while. I'm okay, you know, being, taking on a few more people, as I said, but we're we're never going to be more than um, 
15, um, probably even less than that, actually. And then I, I feel like 10 people uh, I can keep an eye on um, and they will kind of talk to me and you know everything going on and you can also sit around a table at dinner and have a meal together. Uh, when it's larger than that, I think it's a different experience. Um, and I can't be across all the projects. So, you know, if I can't ask me a question, I won't necessarily know, know the answer. Um, whereas now I, I know what the status of everything. I'm involved in all the design decisions. I know what's going on with the management. I don't do all the drawings, but I do know what they sort of consist of. And I'm, I'm there at meetings with the client, certainly in, you know, all the design type meetings. Um, so I think you lose that when it gets a bit larger and I don't want to lose that. Yeah, I can understand that. Earlier on during a conversation, you said that one of the keys to your success really was that you were a very early adopter of the internet and you've really embraced the, the power of the internet and how that has um, solidified you and your brand. The world is changing and we're now moving into this whole unknown territory where AI has become a feature of the design world. How do you envisage AI becoming a part of maybe uh, what you do? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, look, I've seen a lot of images on Instagram where people have done buildings supposedly in the style of other people. There's, there's ones of the White House, you know, Gaudi, Richard Meyer, whatever. They're actually terrible. Mm. So I'm, I'm assuming that they are <laughs> better than that. I remember doing a project when I was at architecture school of designing a building in the style of. It wasn't just about understanding the um, architect's motifs. It was understanding what they were about and, you know, the kind of experiences they were about. So it was a really interesting project. So I don't know that obviously AI could learn more of that. But at the moment, it's not producing that. But I think for um, the world of images has massively changed and, you know, the kinds of uh, images, 3D images we produce in-house now, it, it's an amazing part of the design process in that we can see what things would be like, like really early on. So we can change how they look. So for us as designers, it's giving us fantastic information. Um, so I think that's unique. And it's been only, you know, I suppose maybe less than the last four years um, that Maybe, maybe around that, uh, that we've been designing our projects in that way from the beginning. I, I think, you know, about 10 years ago, we'd make yeah. physical models, you know, cardboard models and that kind of thing. So the problem about that is they, they represent, they're great, but they represent a frozen moment that you then, um, it's quite hard to, un, I mean, you do unpick it, you literally unpick the card and you stick it together a different way, but it's very static and then it's showing where you got to at a certain point. The, the 3D, models are just so dynamic and you can say well, what if that wall was there and moved it over there and you, you can see that immediately so that that's that's just been amazing so uh, i guess the idea that you might put something down and then the ai might say well here's a load of options would be quite interesting but i think the editing will always be the key part of you know being an architect is the editing I, I guess the part where you say, here's my uh, vision, go and produce a set of working drawings, I guess that could be done by AI, in which case um, that would make life 
uh, I mean, it would be transformational, and it means small offices could do extremely large projects. I guess that's possible. Again, it will be in the editing. I like what you say about using visuals. We adopted the CGI um, approach to design in so much that we we rarely show clients technical drawings now unless we feel that we need to. And the advantage for, for us as being exactly as you say is that we're actually designing in a kind of 3D visual context and it allows us to go, the scale's wrong, let's change that. And I think that in many ways it's made us design better just by changing, you know, the the visual way in which we're presenting it to clients. I also feel that when they see it, it's far more impactful and they buy into it so much better than trying to um, show them concepts with with drawings to support it. So yeah, I share your view on that. I also think that the human element of AI, well, it's not there. And it's the human element of the implementation of any image that I think that, you know, will always bring. Uh, But I do think it's useful. I think it has um, certainly got its place in terms of maybe you know, showing you an idea you'd not thought of. Um, it's another another place to look. So as we come towards the end then, a couple of closing questions for you. If you could go back to 18-year-old Gregory, <laughs> what advice would you give yourself? I knew you were going to ask me this one, and it's a really, it's a really difficult one. <laughs> in, in some respect, you know, I can only think of like glib answers, which is buy Bitcoin early or, you know. or um... <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> Or um, you know, start start working out when you're in your twenties. Don't leave it till you're in your forties. <laughs> They're good answers. <laughs> there's like basic life stuff of like trying to think ahead more. I suppose um, the Bitcoin one, I suppose, is good, but also is serious in that I, I guess it is worth trying to pay attention to what might be something in the future. In, in many respects, though, I feel like the journey I went on, I had to go on. I, of course, I wish there had been aspects about the circumstances and my mindset and my emotions that had maybe gone in a different order, um, and maybe I would have done things differently. But I don't know that I, I don't know that I could have done. By the time I was eighteen, I think I was maybe locked into a certain path, and and maybe that's okay. Yeah. And what do you think has been your greatest lesson in business? So something I came across fairly early on was the notion that um, the world isn't a particular way. It, I mean, you can perceive it in any number of ways and you can achieve any number of things. And I set my goal to do what I've done. And I feel like there's still loads to do, by the way. But um, So I suppose knowing where you want to go and not deviating is... Is uh, is one path? I guess that was the path I I took. I think uh, I think it's not the entrepreneur path where you try one thing and then maybe decide it's not the thing. You do another thing. So I'm I'm definitely not a serial entrepreneur. I definitely am a you know um, an architect who designs houses. And you said you've still got lots to do. So what is next? I I'm still fascinated by the process of working in different situations and designing houses and also you know, extending houses and working with old buildings. So it is all, all of interest to me. And I, I, I guess when I hear about a new possibility, be it in central London or the countryside or somewhere further, I, I find that really exciting. So I've got all, all those sort of up in the air and in some respects, I know we're building some really interesting stuff at the moment, but also I'm really excited about the one I haven't quite heard about yet or I maybe just heard a bit about and 
want to get involved in that. So the, the new one is always the sort of the exciting one. I do like the new shiny things in life, but I do sort of give value to the age and historic too. That's great. You're not the first person that's told me that the best project is the next one. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's true. I was going to say, I think it's a world of being positive and looking to the future. So it's always going to be about the next one. No, that's really true. So, Gregory, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your story with us. There are so many crossovers between our related industries. Um, some of the challenges are similar. So I hope that everything that you've had to say will um, resonate with some people. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation with Gregory as much as I have today. Gregory's simple conviction to articulate things in such a way, such as talent and time, that's the value of what we offer. And I think that that is a wonderfully simple way of expressing the value of the services that interior design and architecture bring to their clients. I also really enjoyed how he was able to say, do things really well once because it does take time to do detailed, high-quality work, and sometimes we do get a pushback from clients. However, invariably, taking the shorter route takes more time and inevitably greater cost. And finally, I love his simple philosophy. Enjoy your life and have a fantastic house. I think that's great. Thank you for joining me. I have loved having you here with me on the If These Walls Could Talk podcast. If you are a designer and would like to hear more conversations from other design professionals, from the kind of people who at one time or another have been right where you are, then I do hope you will follow the show and listen again in two weeks' time. I'll be right here, wherever you would usually find your podcasts. Just search for If These Walls Could Talk by the Business of Interiors. If you would like to be a guest on the podcast, talk about sponsoring the show or work with me, please reach me at hello at thebusinessofinteriors.co.uk. Finally, it means a lot to the success of this show if you could follow, leave a review and share this program amongst your design community. This show is sponsored by Rachel Usher Interior Design. Thank you so much for joining me.